Hello again everybody, this is Jason Powers. Today's episode is about Peter Daszak. From gain-of-function studies to vaccine hesitancy programming, the COVID-19 story turns on this guy and his cohorts. There are very few companies that can control an entire viral supply chain so well. It appears the U.S. medical establishment, the NIAID, and the Wuhan Virology Lab in China serve this exact purpose, a supply chain that can be used for a host of reasons. As an example, first of all, the, we're only looking at viral families that include um, those that have gone into people from animals. So we, we narrow it down straight away. Then, you, then when you get a sequence of a virus and it looks like a relative of a known nasty pathogen, just like we did with SARS, we found other coronaviruses in bats, a whole host of them. Some of them looked very similar to SARS. So we sequenced the spike protein, the protein that attaches to cells. Then we, well, I didn't do this work, but my colleagues in China did the work. You create pseudoparticles, you look, you insert the spike proteins from those viruses, see if they bind to human cells. And each step of this, you move closer and closer to this virus could really become pathogenic in people. So you narrow down the field, you reduce the cost, and you end up with a small number of of viruses that really do look like killers. Then you look in people and you say, in the people that live in the region where this animal lives, that are exposed to that virus, do we see antibodies specific? So that was Peter Daszak right there. Uh, he was discussing our bat coronavirus, which seems to be his uh, a thing that he's been quite interested in since the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus that was released back in uh, 2003. So I, there's a lot to discuss with this particular uh, fellow, and there's been many people who have been on his case or on his trek, uh, the National Pulse in particular, particularly uh, Nat, Natalie Winters and Raheem Kassam, and a, no, a number of other uh, people that are involved in uh, trekking down what this guy's up to and what he's been up to for how long. I think there's a, a good uh, analysis that was done uh, by a, a guy named L. 
who actually I met last uh, last year, roughly around March 2020, late March 2020, and she started doing background research and actually actually found Peter Daszak back then and started looking into this Eco Health Alliance. So instead of me discussing it, she summarizes pretty well and I think about eight minutes what this guy's been up to and I think that's an important uh, stepping stone for what we'll discuss after that there have been a few times where they've expressed some self-awareness as in this tweet in 2015 where they say engineered bat viruses stir debate over risky research in this article they discuss the debate going on about engineering viruses to become more lethal or more contagious known as gain-of-function research Peter Daszak is quoted as saying the study findings move this virus from a candidate emerging pathogen to a clear and present danger. Well, he would know best. Let's have a look at the history of Peter Daszak and the laboratories involved with the research involving SARS. His first funding from the National Institute of Health centered around the Nipah virus and the risk of future outbreaks of viruses in South Asia. That research began in 2002. And it is actually that first award in 2002 to study the Nipah virus that brings Peter Daszak and Xi Zhengli together for the first time. Despite the research centering around Nipah virus, it seemingly brought them together after studying bat reservoirs of viruses, including SARS. The first paper that Peter Daszak and Xi Zhengli authored together is titled, Bats are a Natural Reservoir of SARS-like Coronaviruses. It was submitted on August 5, 2005 and accepted and published on October 4, 2005. At the end, it states, this work was jointly funded by a special grant for the Animal Reservoir of SARS Coronavirus State Key Program for Basic Research Grant, which comes from the People's Republic of China, and the NIH NSF Ecology of Infectious Disease Award from the John Fogarty International Center, which are some of those very first awards that I mentioned towards the beginning of this video. The second paper they author together is from December 2006 and appears on the CDC's website. In the abstract, it says, Recently, we and another group independently identified several horseshoe bat species as the reservoir host for a large number of viruses that have close genetic relationship with the coronavirus associated with severe acute respiratory syndrome, known as SARS. Our current research focused on the identification of the reservoir species. In addition to the SARS-like coronaviruses, many other novel bat coronaviruses have been detected by PCR. The discovery of bat SARS-like coronaviruses and the great genetic diversity of coronaviruses in bats have shed new light on the origin and transmission of SARS coronaviruses. The end of the paper states, although at this stage we cannot rule out the possibility of direct transmission from the natural reservoir host to humans, molecular epidemiologic studies and studies of the receptor S protein interaction indicate that the progenitor viruses are unlikely to be able to infect humans and that a rapid viral evolution in an intermediate host seems to be necessary to adapt the virus for human infection. They also say that they believe that a continued search in different bat populations in the People's Republic of China and neighboring countries, combined with experimental infection of different bat species with SARS coronavirus, will eventually identify the native reservoir species. So this right here is where they admit that they're going to be experimenting on the viruses to see how they can cross over into humans. In the end, in the acknowledgement, it states the work conducted by our multi-nation collaborative team was jointly funded by a special grant for animal reservoirs of SARS coronavirus part of which was a special fund from the president of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which is where Xi Jingli works, and the National Institute of Health National Science Foundation Ecology of Infectious Disease, which is the award that comes from the NIH at the John Fogarty International Center. I know that's a lot to take in, but bear with me here. This means that Peter Daszak was involved with Xi Jingli much sooner than originally thought, and it also explicitly states that they plan to engineer the virus to see if they can get it to cross over to different species as a method to see where the virus might emerge next. 
They have a very long and very established history of working together, and there is also a similar history of the United States funds going to these very studies that likely put us into the situation we are in now. In 2008, the study of bat coronaviruses turns over to Dr. Fauci and the NIAID in the award titled Risk of Viral Emergence from Bats. This award extended from 2008 to 2012 and was valued at around $2.5 million. In the award abstract, the description says they will use a range of in vitro techniques, including infection and bat cell cultures, to examine the pathogenesis of the new viruses and a pool of available bat viruses which have not yet emerged in humans. This award leads to the third paper of consequence that Peter Daszak and Xi Jing Li co-authored together. It was published on October 30, 2013, titled Isolation and Characterization of a Bat SARS-like Coronavirus that Uses the ACE2 Receptor. In the abstract, it states, here we report whole genome sequences of two novel bat coronaviruses from the Chinese horseshoe bat family. These viruses are far more closely related to SARS coronavirus than any previously identified bat coronaviruses, particularly in the receptor binding domain of the spike protein. And finally, it states, our results provide the strongest evidence to date that Chinese horseshoe bats are natural reservoirs of SARS coronavirus, and that intermediate hosts may not be necessary for direct human infection by some bat SARS-like coronaviruses. And finally, like always, in the acknowledgments, they acknowledge financial support from China, the NIAID, and a few other programs. It also explicitly states that Xi Jingli and Peter Daszak designed and coordinated the study. All authors contributed to the interpretations and conclusions presented. And lastly, Xi Jingli wrote the manuscript with significant contributions from Peter Daszak. But the real kicker is the award that extended from 2014 to 2020, where the project summary states, in a previous R1, we found that bats in southern China harbor an extraordinary diversity of SARS coronaviruses, some of which can use human ACE2 to enter cells, infect humanized mouse models, causing SARS-like illness, and evade available therapies or vaccines. We found that people living close to bat habitats are the primary risk groups for spillover, that at one site, diverse SARS coronaviruses exist that contain every genetic element of the SARS coronavirus genome. And and identified serological evidence of human exposure among people living nearby. They say they will use S-protein sequence data, infectious clone technology, in vitro and in vivo infection experiments, and analysis of receptor binding to test the hypothesis that percentage divergence thresholds in S-protein sequences. They say the data and analysis will be critical for the future development of public health interventions and enhanced surveillance to prevent the re-emergence of SARS or the emergence of a novel SARS coronavirus. Two years after the funding began, Peter Daszak and Xi Jing Li, known as the Batwoman in Wuhan, co-authored a paper titled Bat Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome-Like Coronavirus Encodes an Extra Accessory Protein Involved in Modulation of the Host Immune Response. At the end, they thank a group from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, a person from the Chinese Academy of Science in China, and say the work was jointly funded by the National Science Foundation of China and the National Institute of Health, NIAID. For funding information, it says this work included efforts from Xi Jingli and was funded by the National Natural Science Foundation of China. It also included efforts from Peter Daszak, who was funded by the Foundation for the National Institute of Health, the NIAID. Before we jump more into the research carried out by Peter Daszak in the Wuhan Virology Lab, let's take a look at the funds received directly by the EcoHealth Alliance and where those funds go. Since the EcoHealth Alliance is a nonprofit organization, it is required to file a Form 990-PF, which lays out its finances in great detail. For the 2015 fiscal year, we see that Peter Daszak drew a salary of $353,981, $30,000 of which is a bonus, and $46,000 of which are non-taxable benefits. We also see that the EcoHealth Alliance has granted $892,810 to the Columbia Millman School, which is where Peter Daszak and Jeffrey Sachs work together. We also see two different items for China listed as program services, one for coronavirus and emerging diseases, and one just for coronavirus. 
The form specifically states that they only have one office in that region, so we have to assume this is the program that works with the Wuhan Virology Lab. These are itemized specifically as wire transfers, so in 2015, $300,000 got wired directly to China for coronavirus and emerging diseases. You also see where they detail the Department of Defense Global Rapid ID tool, which they developed to enhance the performance of a diagnostic tool to diagnose outbreaks of emerging infectious diseases. Whatever happened with that $2.3 million, we may never know. For the 2016 fiscal year, we see that Peter Daszak made $25,000 more than he did in the previous year, and there are also more wire transfers to China for coronavirus research. It's a lot of the same for the 2018 990 PF, but in 2019, we see a direct wire transfer from the EcoHealth Alliance to the Institute of Microbiology for the Chinese Academy of Sciences for $195,000. So there's the proof that the EcoHealth Alliance does directly give money to the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which is where Xi Jingli works, which works in conjunction with the Wuhan Virology Lab. And just for the fun of it, to drive this home, this is the Wuhan Institute of Virology's website for the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which details all of the name changes and all of the associations of the institute. To summarize everything we have learned so far. So that was a pretty good breakdown of, of um, Mr. Daszak's uh, uh, um, connections to uh, our uh, favored bat lady that happens to be out there. In particular, uh, today, or at least it's been revealed recently, uh, that his only recommendation on LinkedIn was for uh, the Bat Lady. Um, he has deleted his LinkedIn account, but there is an archive that shows exactly where that is, and I've left that in the description. But more to the point, um, what we're seeing, at least on the front side of this, is that the gain-of-function studies, which was uh, supported by the NIAID, and the National Institutes of Health, and Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, obviously works directly with Peter Daszak. Uh, he also received emails from Anthony Fauci, and they know each other well. There's a another article that has been dropped recently by Jack Posobiec that shows uh, them working at the, I think it's called the Cosmo Club, or go, a, a meeting at the Cosmo Club. They're, they hang out together. They're good friends. So there's no there's no uh, there's no doubt about it that they're uh, involved with each other, and they have been for many many years. And we know that Xi Jinping has been involved with Peter Daszak since at least 2003 or 2005 era. Uh, their first paper together was in 2005. And around the same time, Anthony Fauci was uh, getting involved with Bill Gates. And I only mention that because that's uh, the, their partnership or their first in contact was around 2003. And that's when uh, Bill Gates became heavily interested in the World Health Organization and his uh, global health initiatives that he started to kick off around that time. And by the end of the decade in 2010, uh, Anthony Fauci was appointed to the decade, uh, decade of vaccines at the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And why I think that's important is because the vaccine part of this becomes uh, prevalent or more uh, in focus when we look at Peter Daszak later. Uh, we're going to step uh, step ahead and we're going to actually first look at the, <clears throat> the, the way this virus has actually worked and what has been known about it as uh, determining that it's a gain of function. This information has been out there for quite a while and Peter Daszak actually was hijacked recently or by uh, the Lancet uh, through uh, an addendum that they added to one of his papers and he's been removed from that 
particular paper because of his uh, involvement, uh, because they pr- they pr- pushed a agenda which was a disinformation campaign across the world that this was not a gain of function study, that it was not a, it did not originate in the Wuhan lab. Um, at least that is what I have uh, what has been contended by him. He's going to try to wiggle out of this, but I don't think he will. So we're going to start leave off with uh, Dr. Dolores Cahill, who in late April, early May, uh, she had a interview with uh, uh, David um, Cullen. Of uh, they're both they're both of the same national origin, but I'll let you listen to her for a second because in about five minutes you're going to learn a lot more about uh, this virus and what possibly is behind it all. So we need need to, to, and also also if people people are not informed how they protect their immune system now with vitamins and have hydroxychloroquine at the ready, it's almost like they want to have a high increase in death so that they can retrospectively justify the lockdown so that they can retrospectively justify these curtailments in our freedoms. And I'm sure you're aware of Event 201 and that the IMF had pandemic bonds, that uh, the pandemic had to be called... Uh, by the end of March 2020 for those bonds to pay out. Um, And there were various people who know if you know that a pandemic is going to be called. And of course, now I do have a few slides later on about the... And those bonds are very important because there were a number of our uh, United States senators that happened to be invested in a certain way. Um, I think one of them happened to be uh, Kelly Loeffler, uh, Richard Burr, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me to this, so I, I may be making suppositions here, but there were a number of senators that happened to be noticed for their particular investments that they happened to get out of at the right and appropriate timing of this situation. And as we know, there was a financial impact with this in particular as far as shutting down and certain people who were invested correctly made enormous amounts of money off of this pandemic, which um, amongst them were most of the billionaires. And I don't think that was by, that isn't by accident. And I'm sure that there was preparations made in order to achieve that goal because they managed to seamlessly transition to garnering greater market share. So we'll go back to her for a second. The funding funding, of America for the Wuhan lab and the kind of research that they did just to give people that information. But we don't have to go there. But there's like one or two slides if you want. I'm happy to go. What slides are they? So they are the uh, slide uh, 16, for example. 16. 16 and 17. The proximal origin of SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. So this is a Nature Medicine article. So I'm sure you know that um, this research related to this virus was done in America in the North Carolina labs. And then there was a moratorium on this type of research. So what this is, it's called a gain of function research. So if we say the pathogenic mechanism from one organism is effective in making it pathogenic to humans, that if you recombinantly, which is very easy to do. You could do it in a few days in a lab, restrict out that region and ligate it into another region of a virus. And then you would introduce the pathogenic function. So that's called gain of function. And this coronavirus, if you just move on to the next slide, 17, just to give you, um, in general, these viruses have 30,000 nucleotides. But in this SARS-CoV-2, there's actually a stretch 
of 12 nucleotides that are not present in the other viruses. And this would not happen naturally. Right, so, so this, this is what Dr. Judy Mikovits, sorry to interrupt, has said that it would take 800 years to go from bats to humans. Is that, was that yeah. something you agree with? That's it. Absolutely. So I just gave some of the papers. So this is published, you know, in peer reviewed papers. And like this article discussing it is nature medicine, you know. So this is a very prestigious article. Just what they are doing is just reporting that there is an initial 12 nucleotides. And if you just move on to the next slide, you can see that a mutation will say is just that one of the nucleotides randomly changes out of 30,000 in one person or it changes in a region. And that happens, you know, as a mutation naturally. But what is in this virus is these 12 nucleotides, and there is no homology to the other similar coronaviruses in this region. And so it's been publicized that this was actually inserted into the original SARS viruses back in 2006. So on slide 20, there are publications. And then there was another publication in 2008. Now, I'm just showing you that it's well known that this has happened. And then another one again from different lab. But what's most important here is that in Beijing, uh, from the lab in Wuhan, there was a publication in October 2019 that discusses this particular modification in October 2019. And what we now know, first of all, there was no bats for sale ever in the seafood market, right? And also a PhD student from this lab died and it was at her funeral, it seems, uh, in Wuhan that uh, people started to get the initial symptoms after her funeral. And then it looks like that it was actually circulating. Now, that's sometime between October, November, December in China. So there was already a publication about 40 people who were tested that was published in China on the 2nd of January. So to have people already tested and in a publication by the 2nd of January 2020, it would have mean that, you know, these started probably in November. So this is just to say that there is an issue with this virus. But on a positive note, it looks like we've. So that fills in some of the timeline that we're looking at. So in a piece published on May 5th of 2021, uh, after a year of living with this impact, Nicholas Wade uh, is a science writer for Nature and the New York Times published The Origin of COVID-19. Did people or nature open Pandora's box in, at Wuhan? And he, write up, he wrote up a 4,000-word piece, which obviously I'm not going to read all of it. Uh, he does discuss the two origins, which is one of them is a wet market. And uh, we're going to leave that aside because, of the, because there's an implausibility of that being the case. And there's a statistical and likelihood of that being the case based upon other analysis that's been done. <clears throat> but in particular, the Wuhan Virology Lab, uh, what Dolores was uh, talking, Dolores Cahill, who has ran a level four lab, who has been in this uh, field for uh, upwards of 30 years. Uh, she's a very, uh, actually, she has a pretty high uh, Hirsch value, and she's actually been in the like I said, in the field for quite a while, and she knows what she's talking about it ostensibly. Uh, many many people can recognize the same thing. So Nicholas Way mentioned the double CGG hallmark, which is a um, <clears throat> has to do with your DNA or v, uh, RNA in this particular case for the virus. But anyway, 
I'm going to read a few parts of this because it's important to understand where we're at. So contrary to letters, uh, letters writer's assertion, the idea that the virus might have escaped from a lab invoked accident, not conspiracy. It surely needed to be explored, not rejected out of hand. A defining mark of good scientists is that they go to great pains to distinguish between what they know and what they don't know. By this criterion, the signatures of the Lancet letter were behaving as poor scientists. They were assuring the public of facts they could not know were true. The Lancet letter had been organized and drafted by Peter Daszak, president of the Eco Alliance of New York. Daszak's organization funded corona research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, as we have noted. In the SARS-2 virus had indeed escaped from research he funded, Daszak would be potentially culpable, which he is, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, this acute conflict of interest was not declared to the Lancet's readers. To the contrary, the letter concluded, we declared no competing interests. Well, and as we've just noted, that the Lancet has added an addendum to this particular letter. <clears throat> it took a month, but uh, yeah, they're trying to get their story straight now that they uh, now that they're uh, pursuing the, the lab leak uh, um, potentiality. So, going further on, uh, he was... Uh, you know, let's see. Let's see. If I go down the road here a little bit, I gotta read read the rest of this. She then teamed up with Ralph S. Barrick, an eminent coronavirus researcher at the University of North Carolina. Their work focused on enhancing the ability of bat viruses to attack humans, so as to examine the emergence potential—that is, the potential to infect humans—of circulating bat uh, coronaviruses. In pursuit of this aim, in November 2015. They created a novel virus by taking the backbone of the SARS-1 virus and replacing its spike protein with one from a bat virus known as SHC014-CUV. This manufactured virus was able to infect the cells of human airway, at least when tested against a lab culture of of such cells, which is called in vitro. So the crossroads of gain-of-function research concerned the potential to prepare for and mitigate future outbreaks must be weighed against the risk of creating more dangerous pathogens. So that was their justification there. Um, Wade bluntly states, this is Nicholas Wade again, bluntly states what most risk-averse and rational folks have come to know. That's me (coughs) saying that. From the hindsight of 2021, one can say that the value of gain-of-function studies in preventing the SARS epidemic was zero. The risk was catastrophic if indeed the SARS virus was generated in a gain-of-function experiment. That's his way of talking around the point of being absolutely uh, assured of that being being there. <clears throat> so Peter Daszak was the prime contractor to Xi's grants addressing the S-proteins. And I think we can go down the go down the line a little bit further. But I my hypothesis is there's motive, means, and opportunity to do all this, and that we we should be very uh, interested in and in why a guy would be so interested in doing this. And he he has discussed very openly about how uh, the virus can be easily uh, coronaviruses can be easily manipulated. Um, I'll leave a link in the U, uh, YouTube link to his interview assuming it hasn't been deleted which is another part of the the which is the phase uh, two of this which is the vaccine he recently uh uh as a coach he was a chair on one part of the committee and he was a part of the other group uh, another group 
uh, tied to uh, vaccine, and the other one uh, there was two groups to a huge paper. It was about 230 pages long, and in it they talk about vaccine and the coercion. Uh, they talk about coercion techniques. So I'm going to read directly from this. Um, let's see, page. This is on page 80, 86. So they they got together a conglomeration. They had an event in August of uh, 2020 where they had a symposium. They had a, a, a presentation. I'm sure there's video out there of it. Uh, it's a matter of finding it. But anyway, so the race, race, which is the name of this lady, I assume, described the interplane of existing federal and state immunization laws in the United States. The U.S. federal government role promoting vaccination rates is primarily a supportive and enabling role rather than a coercive. The federal government does not and likely could not mandate vaccination, but it currently plays several roles in increasing vaccination rates. Although, although the Commerce Clause is one of the tools used by the federal government to regulate public health, it probably couldn't, would not allow for a federal childhood vaccine mandate. Notice, childhood. They seem very interested in getting this into the ch- children, despite the fact that this has no prevalence of, of uh, mortality uh, for kids, or very, very low prevalence of mortality amongst kids. So low that it's you're more likely to die of a regular flu than you are of the coronavirus. I think that is a part that can be attributable to the fact that the the gain of function was specifically designed for a reason. And, and, and whether you believe it's leaked or not, it seems quite entertaining that this is uh, uh, quite, uh, let's just say, relevant to think that uh, that this would actually be um, designed for a p- particular population and not for other populations, yet they want to enhance vaccination rates. This entire paper is all about that. So, leaving off from there... It talks uh, this uh, particular lawyer explained the power to regulate vaccine compliance in the United States primarily lies with the states. States have broad leeway to to use the law to increase vaccination in ways that are not optimally leveraged. However, see that uh, optimally optimally leveraged states have broad regulatory power in the area of childhood vaccines because vaccination lies at the intersection of two plenary powers of the state, police powers and parents' portray doctrine. It's a Latin term. I, I, I don't know how to pronounce that. The police power of states to regulate public health has been acknowledged since before the 19th century, which is, that's where you get the smallpox or what not vaccinations that used to be done back in the in the 19th century which would be the 18th uh, which would be the 1800s the power of the states to regulate child vaccinations is further affirmed by states uh, p- parents p- patri which gives the states the power to protect the vulnerable so it's about vulnerability of the child or at least they're using that as the two pillars of this particular situation the combination of these powers create a strong legal sphere she noted States have primarily uh, primarily regulated childhood vaccination through school immunization requirements and adult vaccinations through workplace immunization requirements. But recent emphasizes the states have many other tools available. So when you talk about many other tools, one of their biggest tools is coercion. And they talked about this in detail. And uh, they uh, put put together a list of this uh, on page. Let me look here right here. So there's a paragraph here 
Same person. Reese noted that many of the other tools available to states are less coercive than school immunization mandates, which limit access to schooling based on children's immunization status. To explore options for broadening the scope of state-level activities in this domain, she presented the suit of legal tools for promoting vaccination on a continuum of coerciveness. Progressing from most coercive to least coercive, these tools include use of force, criminal law, conditioned access, cost internalization, mandated transparency, procedural tightening, positive incentives, and persuasion through education. Reese said that the many schools report data on immunizations rate, but few states are required to do so. So what I'm getting at with this is that there's been this propensity uh, for these people to push a vaccination. Now, here's the question. Here's the question you should always ask. Why? And then moreover, now that we know that Peter Daszak is attached to this paper and he's also attached to the gain of function and we know what he's been doing with the, the Chinese bat lady and the fact that he hid his involvement with that initially by saying that there was no leak. Why would you believe anything that comes out of his mouth? Why would you want to believe anything that comes out of these uh, these particular papers because they are being used to get vaccination. Vaccination, though, is being done on a highly experimental basis with an uh, unapproved FDA uh, vaccine, the Moderna one, and also there's the Pfizer and there's the AstraZeneca, what, uh, so on and so forth. The point is, is when someone starts with a lie to co- coerce you to believe one thing, and and in this in pa- this entire paper also pivots on misinformation, and they talk about Google, they talk about Facebook, they talk about YouTube, they talk about censorship, they talk about trying to coerce people by based upon declarative statements. In other words, they don't they don't want you, they don't inform you of your rights, they strip you of your rights. What they're doing is illegal, and it is wrong morally, ethically. And everything else in between. And moreover, it's based upon the fact that they caused this situation. Problem, reaction, solution. It's an agenda. And it's a greater agenda. And we've known about it and we can see the agenda before us. This is not... <laughs> this is obvious. This is the kind of agenda that you, you, you arrest people over. We did far, far worse to Trump in particular. I'm using him as an example with um, his Manafort... Uh, putting him on his campaign and then look at how many people through man I mean literally they went after Manafort back to his 2007 um, situations and the reason why I bring that up only because Trump didn't know the guy back in 2007 John McCain did though and it was quite entertaining to to assess that motivation that they would use to do that and as a matter of fact I'm going to go back here to a a little clip here, maybe if I can find it here quickly. Um, so uh, bear with me a second. So, okay, sorry. Share, share this, this with, with you. you. Enjoy. Imagine, Rachel, that you had one of the Democratic nominees for 2020 uh, on your show. And that person said, the only other adversary of ours who's anywhere near as good as the Russians is China. Why should Russia 
have all the fun. And since Russia is clearly backing Republicans, why don't we ask China to back us? China, if you're listening, I'm sure our media would richly reward you. So that's Miss Hillary Rodham Clinton, who seems to be uh, always in the background. She's in the background on this particular situation, um, or at least she, uh, one of her minions is. So this pre-publication that that was released on uh, it's called uh, the critical the critical public health value of vaccines, and they're ta- called tackling issues of access and hesitancy. And if you go to the very beginning of this. Uh, uh, even though it was written up by different people, the the conference that they were involved with happened to have um, the funding uh, listed at the outset. And so this was funded by uh, the Welcome Fund, Johnson & Johnson, the National Institutes of Health, New Venture Fund, Uniform Services, University of Health Services, U.S. Agency for International Development, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. The key one in there is the New Venture Fund. As it turns out, New Venture Fund is funded, uh, has been funded and was run by a guy named Eric, well, it's it was run by a guy named Eric Kessler up through 2019. And Eric Kessler is a Clinton lackey and has been for many, many years. And it turns out that Bill Gates has contributed about $350 million to the new venture fund, which uh, uh, is approximately 15% of every dollar that they've received over the past, uh, I think it's about 14 years, because I think they started in 2006. So why is that important? Well, if new venture fund is behind this, they they did an activity. This is a contract between the National Academy of Sciences and, and these particular entities uh, what does that tell you? There's a there's a monetary interest uh, in getting results, and in this particular document, Gavi is mentioned about 85 times, which Gavi is run by Gates. He he founded it. The uh, was it the Global uh, Vaccine Alliance or whatever it's called, um, whatever the acronym stands for. But it's about vaccines. And as we know, he also uh, Gates is. I, the, Gates is only important from the standpoint of he's been both the money man and he's the fa- he's done a lot of FaceTime along with Fauci. Have you, if, if you haven't really paid any attention, I said the Decade of Vaccine Board. You have Gates Foundation creating the Decade of Vaccine Board in 2010, and you have Fauci who is on that board. Fauci and Gates have been the faces of this particular pandemic, at least in the United States. Around the world, there are similar lackeys that are, are either connected to Gates or uh, one step removed. A matter of fact, uh, with the Sage, they've been getting money from certain uh, places. I know the British, uh, there was an episode I watched where in 90 seconds a person broke down all the connections there. Um, I'll have to find it someday. But the the reality is, is when you have these certain people that have been out there in particular... Um, doing that and then you have Fauci behind the scenes in his emails who is uh being um doing uh, emails with Mark Zuckerberg who handles Facebook you have Google who's involved Google um matter of fact Natalie Winters uh track that down with the the potentiality there so um for example 
Natalie Winters wrote, Google-funded research conducted by Peter Daszak's EcoHealth Alliance, a controversial group, was openly collaborated with the Wuhan Institute of Virology on the killer bat virus. Um, she unearthed the ties, the financial ties between Eco Alliance and Google following months of big tech censorship of stories and individual in support of the COVID lab, lab leak. And it just so happens that paper that I was just reading from happens to have uh, a, a, a couple snippets about Google and censorship and misinformation. So this just further confirms this. So Google-backed EcoHealth Alliance plays a critical role in the cover-up of the origins in its president, Peter Daszak. Daszak served as uh, on this wildly compromised World Health Organization's uh, investigation team. He championed the efforts to debunk the lab origin theory of the virus, despite mounting support for the claim first made by experts on the Steve Bannon's war room. Left-wing media sites masquerading as fact-checkers still call the lab theory false, despite the shift in tone from the Biden regime, leading world scientists and intelligence officials. So EcoHealth Alliance also funneled hundreds of thousands of U.S. taxpayer dollars from Dr. Anthony Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases to its research partner in the Wuhan Institute of Virology to conduct killer bat viruses. So... And Google.org, the charity arm of the tech behemoth, has also funded uh, studies carried out by Eco Alliance researchers, including Peter Daszak, since at least 2010. So there's uh, there's the money shot. Actually, I buried the lead. So <clears throat> Google's been involved with them since 2010. Notice the pattern. 2010 became a very uh, hot year, it seems, or it appears. This was right after they tried the swine flu, which didn't take off quite the way they wanted to. But I think they were laying the foundation. Um, if I can hypothesize for a second, I think the last decade has been a setup, at least on the medical side, to eventually roll this out. And they set up this through uh, uh, manufacturing the propaganda. Uh, and they also, I, they have... They've been uh, slowly buying up all the research and buying up medical universities. Gates is big in this. Gates is an enormous uh, portion of this from the financial standpoint. He doesn't know anything, but he knows how to buy scientists. And he knows how to buy universities. He's got an enormous... He, he, he has substantial grants through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations that have gone to 47 of the top 50 medical universities in the United States and, and uh, I think a few foreign partners uh, listed. This is going off the U.S. News and World Report's top 50 of, uh, I think, 2019. And I have, I have written about that and I've put an analysis together of that. And when I say a substantial amounts, we're talking at minimum $20 million, and in some cases up to four to $500 million. And if you're talking about the University of Washington, or John Hopkins, we're talking half a billion dollars. So what happens when you provide a half billion dollars worth of grants? You buy up all the you buy up all the professors. Everybody's beholden to you in one way, shape, or form. Uh, that creates a substantial narrative. And he also owns Harvard in particular. I think he has about four hundred million in, in, at Harvard University. I don't have the exact number right off the top of my head, but I do have a a nice little database that provides all that because Gates suddenly made his database very visible in uh, the spring of 2021. Before that, it was very obf obfuscated. You had to do some 
Um, you can only capture snippets or you can only drag down so many uh, records at a time. But suddenly the database became very um, um, transparent. Uh, they can say through a redesign, but um, it seems interesting that they did, they finally did a redesign on that. And just today, Warren Buffett decided to uh, uh, bail on uh, the Gates Foundation. This after providing Gates with at least $30 billion worth of funding over the past 14 years. Now he'll have an excuse that he's 90, he's getting out, blah, blah, blah. But his hands are dirty because he's been involved with this for 14 years plus. And he's provided the impetus behind Gates's foundation in terms of monetary buttressing, along with Gates's own money from uh, the Microsoft era, which Microsoft has uh, been part and partial to many of the rollouts in, in this particular initiative, especially the vaccine passports. Uh, they're doing that out on the West Coast. And I know I'm getting far afield from Mr. Peter Daszak, but... Uh, Dazik is is a key player because he's a zoologist that they've uh, used as a useful idiot, I would say, because he's going to be the one that's going to take a lot of blame unless he rolls over on somebody. But uh, it's entertaining to go through this. So we're going to go to another aspect. In this particular publication, there was a, a doctor who's listed, which I won't mention his name, but I am aware of, but he's... Um, He's at Indiana University School of Medicine, and the reason why that's important is uh, his uh, his cohort uh, happens. There's a cohort of his in the same department of pedi- pediatrics who recently put out this uh, this particular uh, uh, audio clip. Another question we get asked all the time is, why do I have to get vaccine if I've already had COVID? And that's a good question. And we know that people do have an immune response that lasts at least 90 days. That's why we don't. Do mitigation testing or test you asymptomatically for 90 days after you've been infected with COVID. It's why we don't ask you to quarantine for 90 days after you've had COVID. But people who've been infected with COVID, we don't know exactly what dose of virus they got. We don't know how much of an immune response they had. We don't know how long it lasts. We don't even know if they really did have a good immune response or not, because there are a lot of unknowns when people actually get COVID. When we give you a vaccine, it's very standardized. We know the dose you're getting. We know exactly how much response we expect. We know that in you know the vast, vast majority of people we studied, we get uh, a good response. Now we know for at least six months, hopefully for much longer, we have surety. We know what you're going to get. We know that you are protected in a better way and for a longer period of time than if you've just been infected with COVID. And in order to get that kind of surety to know that we as a population are protected well enough to achieve a level of herd immunity, we have to have everybody get vaccinated. So did you catch that surety? We need to get, you need a, a, a surety to, that you everybody gets vaccinated. This is from a pediatrician that works at IU Medical School. His name, I'll give it to you here, at least according to uh, his bio. Oh, I deleted it. All right, I didn't delete it, but I uh, I left the link in the description. I think it's his name is Carol, um, but I'm going to read his bio, biography on, on this particular website uh, or on YouTube as soon as I can get the video to pop up here and kill the sound. So, um, anyway... Just a second here. It's loading up. It's my internet's giving me a little bit of trouble. So anyway, 
So Dr. Aaron Carroll answers these questions. He's a pediatrician and professor of pediatrics at IU's uh, School of Medicine and the Regina Striff Institute at IU. He is also the vice chair for health policy and outcomes research and the director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research. Carol is a health-related research writer for the New York Times who uses research to, to bunk myths about popular time. It's quite entertaining there that he they, they put he puts in the end who uses research to debunk myths. So what the myth is he promoting? Well, he's promoting the, the myth that your immune system doesn't work. Um, there was a Nature article released last year that it, it went down that road, and it was reviewed by a Dr. Uh, Sebastian Rushworth. It was a Swedish article, but it was published in Nature magazine. I'm going to just uh, read you a snippet from it, which... This is about uh, uh, antibodies and T-cell immunity. We can look at the people who who are convalescing from a severe disease. Among these individuals, 100% had antibodies, 100% had T-cells. This makes sense. When you have a severe illness, you get a strong immune response. Next up, let's look at people who are convalescing from mild disease. In this group, 87% had antibodies, while 97% had T-cells. Again, this makes sense. This was out of uh, uh, a total in each case. The first set was 23. The second set was 31 uh, uh, in the study. Again, this makes sense. If you have symptomatic disease, then that is a sign your immune system has realized there is an infection going on. So there should be uh, signs of that in the form of measurable antibodies and or T-cells. Now, let's look at exposed family members. Remember, this... This was a group of people that had not shown signs of symptomatic disease. In this group, 60% had antibodies, while 93% had T-cells. That was out of a group of 28. This is pretty astonishing, and it shows two things. Firstly, if you live with someone who had COVID, then you are most likely also infected. And end quote. What am I trying to get at? I'm trying to say that that particular doctor who 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 published that it says we need you to get the vaccine because we don't have any assurance of you uh, getting any um, antibodies or having any t-cell immunity they haven't been testing for antibodies and that goes to the goes to the back to the point of mr uh, peter dazik who's you know they're pushing these vaccines and and they're in this paper there's there's little or no dis- there's 230 pages yet there's little or no discussion of any um any uh, uh, what do you call it uh, economic uh, locked, uh, what what kind of destruction you have what's uh, what are the downsides any risk assessment of vaccines um, they act the idea that uh, most people the reason why they don't want to get vaccines may be because they understand health and they understand that they they don't need a vaccine when they've already had COVID nineteen uh, there's no necessity for it. Uh, they're not only not, but the fact is, is these people are not interested in that. They're interested in introducing a very uh, experimental vaccine, which of course they've already got many people to line up for it, because you know they've coordinated and and, and scared and uh, put fear and put the fear of God in people, and they're very pleased with their outcomes in terms of what they're getting, though they want more than seventy percent, and they want to now blackmail people. Uh, as IU has done recently with a 
uh, uh, saying that you can't come to back to a school without a vaccination. As far as I'm concerned, they're trying to test the boundaries of the Constitution, and they need to be smacked down hard, 9-0 preferably, by the Supreme Court of the United States. They need to be put in check once and for all. Um, this, these, vaccine, these vaccine whores, I call them, these addicts, these guys that are pushing this stuff are doing it for money reasons. One of them is Bill Gates, who mentioned in uh, 2019 on CNBC that there's a 20 to 1 return on investment there. So, you know, when someone's mentioning what their, what their return on investment, he said basically he's put about $10 billion into vaccination. And so he's telling everybody, he's bragging that he's probably received back $200 billion in some kind of monetary input. So what better way to do that than in the last year between BARDA and the United States government and a host of other entities out there who have put billions into this uh, push to get everybody vaccinated. And the fact that they already had a lot of this information out there, uh, uh, they were they were setting people up from the get go, and there's a there's a there's a high substantiality that this was coordinated very well back in obviously 2019 and even prior to that, as I've ascertained, I would say going back to 2010, they knew that they could the, the propaganda became more prevalent in American society, uh, the low education system. Gates is behind our uh, degradation of our education system, and you've noticed recently the the push for critical race theory and or race racism in general uh, across the population. This is a this is a way to destroy this country. There's grander. There's multiple objectives. The one re- thing that people don't seem to get or maybe don't realize is there's multiple layers of this. There's bigger of this is a bigger onion. Obviously, destruction in the United States. They don't want us as a world power. China is supposed to supplant us in one way, shape, or form, and/or the globalists are very content on them being in charge, being being the model. Then on the other level, uh, they want to make money. So what better way to make money than to cause a catastrophe and crisis? Uh, they also want the whole entire Western world to be under their thumb, surveillance. Uh, they want everybody stirred up, and they may also want population control. You see how this all benefits them? There's multiple layers to the onion. And that's just my hypothesis on that. But I think there's a lot of dots to be connected. Um, and we have people like Peter Daszak, who's probably very aligned with this, along with Xi Jinping. See, they, they've been coordinating for years, and they've probably been discussing many of these things for uh, quite a long time. And then you have social media has grown up. The Googles, the Facebooks, they're very leftists. They are very keen on censorship, the Twitters of the world throughout. And then you have the World Economic Forum, who's also in, in the background in this, who whose strategic pow- partners were the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust. So, and then it just so happens, by the way, that uh, you have a British zoologist and you have a British, British epidemiologist and Neil Ferguson who happened to have created m- much of this situation. It kind of goes to some other things that probably have been going on in the la- in the background too. That we have a we have some retaliatory issues going on with the British Empire uh, from people that are uh, very well aligned to 
try to take down the United States once and for all. The British people probably don't feel that way, but we certainly have British interests that don't care too much, too kindly for us. It's probably why they sent uh, me, uh, why Meghan Markle is like the bubonic plague of uh, personalities out there right now. So I'm going to end it right there. Um, I think I've spoken enough. Probably probably rambled on too long, but there's a lot of information that we went through, and one of the biggest things is to to continue to uh, run to ground a guy like Peter Peter Dozik. He's a he's a player because he he would be the person that would be the weakest link I think in terms of flipping on somebody like an Anthony Fauci and maybe laying out some other bigger plans because Fauci probably will never break but this guy probably has something to save uh, he could save himself from a long prison sentence because right now everybody is shifting on him but we have Fauci we have Dazic. And we have Gates, who's also been weakened or at least being taken down. It isn't. They're going to play victim cards. They're going to make excuses. But these people have been part and parcel to everything that's been going on in the past uh, um, 16 to 18 months of your life. So we need to continue to put pressure on, on an investigation and bring them to justice as best we can, um, given the situation. Moreover, we need to make people aware that uh, they have rights too, and they should uh, utilize them. They should use the lawsuits to stop this this push for vaccination on people who do not want it. Those that have already received it, I don't know what to say for you, but I, I hope that the best comes out of this. Maybe there is no long-term uh, problem with this, um, but that is that remains to be seen. You have you have you have just been put, uh, placed in the largest guinea pig uh, populace ever in human history. So we shall see. For those of us who who uh, who who believe uh, we have rights, we should assert them. These inalienable rights are always given to us. God bless the United States of America. God bless the world.